This is My Montessori Life, a podcast that holds up a unique lens to contemporary social, cultural, and political issues. Maria Montessori aimed to reform humanity by building a better human being from the start, preparing young children for a life of profound self-determination, empathy, and wisdom, everything to which an advanced civilization should aspire. The podcast's regular hosts are Barbara Isaacs, President of Montessori Europe and one of the world's leading authorities on Montessori, and David Getman, author of the teacher's textbook Basic Montessori and founder of the software firm My Montessori Child, which sponsors this podcast. In this second of three podcasts on the theme of nature, Barbara and David are joined by two guests, Jonathan Preston, Conservation Manager for the Norfolk Wildlife Trust, one of a series of such posts he's held across the country over three decades, with current responsibility for wildlife conservation at 30 different sites in Norfolk. And Nicola Davies, who trained as a biologist, was an original presenter on the BBC's The Really Wild Show, and is the acclaimed author of over 80 illustrated children's books on animals, habitats, ecology, and the sea. Jonathan, to begin, please can you introduce us to what nature conservation is for, and broadly how it's done? I think nature conservation is all-encompassing, really. It, it's um, the the conservation of uh, biodiversity of um, the world. Um, obviously, in my job, it's it's a bit more localised than that uh, in Norfolk. Um, I think it's always the question, what can nature do for you? What can you do for nature? And, and the two things are really importantly linked. Um, how the, the sort of spiritual side of, of nature, you know, going out, in, in the outdoors um, and sort of being in nature. You know, we, we've heard so much in the last two years, you know, during the, the sort of pandemic of, of people reconnecting with nature and pro- perhaps for the first time themselves, but as a as a species, creating with 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 nature and, you know, learning about the, the environment around them. And my my job is is it's sort of focused on on nature reserves. So so Land that we've we've sort of preserved for nature, um, to for, for the benefit of you know the the wildlife that's on it, but also people to come and enjoy. So so it's it's really linking those two things together. Jonathan, wildlife conservation sounds like it's such a wonderful vocation. You're mostly outdoors. You're investigating fascinating natural phenomena. You sometimes discover changes in habitats through the seasons, and maybe even old bits of cultural heritage. Um, can you tell us some stories from your work? For example, at Holm Dunes, which is on the North Norfolk coast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's interesting that the, the, the sort of concept of, of my job being, being outside, I, I think, you know, as you, you sort of get further into a career and, and more experienced, they, they don't put you out to grass. They do the opposite to you and, and take you in from the, the grass almost. So, so I unfortunately do spend a lot of time in front of a computer doing sort of boring things like, like spreadsheets and, and budgets and HR issues and all sorts of things. But I think, you know, the way I see that, you know, I'd love to be outside all the time, but actually it's using the best best use of my skills and experience I've developed over the years to, to make a difference to wildlife. Um, so, so yeah, Holm Dunes is is one of our national nature reserves. So it's one of the the sort of top tier, if you like, uh, nature reserves in the country. Um, we've got nine of them in Norfolk that we we manage. Um, 
and and Hong Dunes is is a real it's a bit of a cliche to say, but a jewel in the crown. It's um, a obviously a coastal site, and it, it's what we call a real mosaic of habitat. So it, it goes from the sort of open sea to the, the sort of sandy beach, onto the dunes, and then down into the sort of um, relic dunes. So, so things that have sort of terrestrialized over, over the years and become sort of woodland scrub, um, grazing marshes, um, salt marshes. So, so there's a real mixture of, of habitats there. Um, and, and obviously with those habitats come a lot of species. You know, it's it's incredibly rich for its biodiversity in all those habitats. Um, it's place on the Norfolk coast. It's right on the edge between the, the wash, the, the sort of estuary area and the, the open sea, the North Sea. So it's 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 incredibly important for migratory birds. Um, they, the, the Norfolk coast is famous, but overall, the home particularly, um, up to sort of 30,000 knot, which is one of the, the small wading birds. If, if you've ever seen things like spring watch, you'll, you'll have definitely seen the sort of big wheeling flocks of, of knot going around and, and we, we get them at the hole. It's also a really popular place for people. Um, and a big part of my job is that the, the management of the balance between people and wildlife um, and, and making sure that it, it's suitable for both. You know, we, we really want people to come out and enjoy the, the sites that we, we see and the, the, the habitats and the, the fresh air, but we, we need people to respect that. And, and, and that's, that's a huge part of what I do. Um, so the people who, who come there are interested in the nature, but also I understand you uncovered something that's called Seahenge, which is a bit like Stonehenge, but it was, um, it was actually under the water when you, when you first came to light. Is that is that one of the attractions there that people come to see this ancient site that was there? Um, it's 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 actually been been removed now. Um, the decision was taken um, because of its its the, the the nature of the environment there. You know, in, in in the sea, it was deteriorating very quickly. As soon as it it was exposed to oxygen, it started to deteriorate. So it's actually been been removed from site and taken to the museum at Kings Lynn. Um, but we, we still get people coming to, to the site to, to see where it was and, and sort of archaeologists and, and people interested in, in sort of early history coming to see it. But we, we get a, a huge range, range of people. Um, a lot of them are what you call casual visitors, just coming to enjoy the beach and, and walk their dog or, or, or you know, play in the sand um, through to, to really sort of specialist sort of study groups, sort of bird watchers particularly, um, but studies of insects plants, all sorts of things. So, so it's a real mixture of people. I think it's interesting what you said about balancing the people and the nature side and making sure it's a healthy interaction on, in both directions. Um, is that, does that present particular problems about people's behavior or maybe if you know groups are too large and difficult to manage? And is that, is that part of your role just to keep keep the peace so to speak between the absolutely. two absolutely I, I i think you know what what you learn in life particularly in this sort of work is you can't please all the people all the time so so we we, we try and do our best but yeah as, as with most things it's sort of a, a minority of people who can can spoil it for a majority um you know whether that's people you know with their dogs out of control sort of in the, the bird breeding season you know when we've got got sort of really vulnerable nesting birds on the beach which 
you know, you, you wouldn't even see until it was too late. You know, they're, they're sort of tucked in the, the shingle and just, just sort of doing their doing their thing there. And then obviously if a dog comes along and flushes them off the nest, you know, that can, can have real consequences. Um, things like people having barbecues that, you know, it's great to go into the, the countryside and, you know, have a have a picnic and enjoy enjoy food like that. But the, the potential consequences of, of setting fire to the place are obviously something that, you know, people need to need to think about. So, yeah, our, our job is very much sort of, um, you know, we have sort of site-based staff. Um, the warden at Holm has been there for 30 years, obviously enjoys it. And he, you know, he, his job is is very much that sort of peacekeeper of, of the, the site and, and, and keeping that balance. Where I've I've sort of done done that mainly is when I, I work for the Corporation of London down in Epping Forest, which is a eight thousand acre forest, ancient forest, um, sort of in London. You know, the, the southern ends of it are sort of in, into sort of Forest Gate and, and Wanstead, and it had four million visitors a year. So you've got this in really delicate ecosystem. You know, all these ancient trees that have been there for, for hundreds of years. You know, real really delicate and and you know veterans so that they they're sort of need a lot of looking after and then lots lots of people coming out as well and and there getting that balance right was was even harder because you've got sort of multicultural people you've got um you know lots and lots of of people coming out and and that green green lung of london if you like that you know people want to come out and and rediscover themselves and and you know as i said most people do that without any problems but you you, you know, you do get that minority who who do ruin it for other people. So, are there particular things that parents and 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 teachers with groups of young children should keep in mind when visiting um, sensitive conservation sites? I think so. Yeah, I mean, we we have have what we call the countryside code, which is a a sort of you know overall sort of blueprint for how how you should behave when you're out out and about so things like keeping dogs under control um closing gates not lighting fires not leaving litter all all things that that you know sort of we do naturally most people but it's i think it's a really good opportunity you know to to instill those those sort of behaviors into children so it becomes as i say a culture rather than a, a, a sort of thing you have to think about it's it's you know we still get obviously people dropping litter but it's become the a, a thing that i think most people just wouldn't do and it's not something they have to think about it's just a, a sort of subconscious reaction to to what you do with your litter for example so so and that that starts as a, very early on you know that's really important yeah yeah sure can you also tell us about the Brex, which apparently has an incredible geodiversity? It's a mixture of woodland and heathland, and yeah, well, one of the great a, a natural bit, areas of the country. It is. I, I, I'm a little bit biased because I, I live in the Brex, so I, I, I sort of live in in the middle of rural Norfolk, sort of um, seven miles from the nearest town and, and two minutes from the nearest pub. So that suits me quite well, but. Um, we yeah the the Brex is um, as you say a, a unique area and we you we use the word unique a lot in nature conservation and it, it can be overused but I feel with the Brex it's it's perfectly justified because it's um an area of um sort of 
geologically, it's an area of chalk, um, so as, you, as you'd see down in the, the sort of south of the country, sort of the White Cliffs of Dover, the same bed of chalk. But here it's been overlain with um, glacial deposits, so, so gravels have come in. So you end up with this real mixture of calcareous grasslands um, with, with acidic grasslands as well. So, so when you look at a, a what we call um, an MVC, so it's a, a sort of map of the, the vegetation types, it's, it's a real sort of palette of, of these different, different habitats in a relatively small area. Um, it's, it's home to sort of nearly two thirds of um, rare and endangered species in the, of the UK total. Two thirds are found in the Brecks. So, so, and it's you know it's a, it's only a hundred square miles in total. It goes across Norfolk and into Suffolk, and it is a strange landscape. It's it's sort of flat as 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 we, we think of Norfolk. So fairly barren. It's it's one of the driest places and one of the hottest places in the UK. But it can also be the coldest place as well in in lowland Britain. And it's these extremes of temperatures. We can have um, frosts every month of the year in the Brecks. That's that's changed in recent years because of climate change. But you know, and the the extremes lead to species that are on the edge of their range, on the edge of you know their their existence in the UK, and we have have certain species of plants and insects that are endemic to the area. You know, literally, they occur nowhere else in the in the world, not just in the UK, and that's quite a responsibility. We, we've got a plant called prostate per, perennial gnarl, takes a bit of saying, and it only occurs on two sites in the UK, and we we look after one of those. So, so and it's it's a tiny little plant. It's only sort of like as the name prostrate would suggest tiny sort of no more than a centimeter tall and really would be really easy to get rid of accidentally you know sort of plow up or graze off with, with, with livestock so yeah it's it's a big responsibility that we have but one that we you know enjoy it's a, it's a challenge thanks for describing it. it sounds i've got to go there i mean that's my feeling barbara is are there ways that early educators can help children to become like conservation it sounds like we all need to become conservationists um in your experience what are the kinds of things that can be done with young children to help them move in that direction well i i think that for young children it is really important to know how to behave when they encounter creatures or plants so you know often you will find if there is an ant crawling on the um, patio outside, the natural instinct of a small child would be to squash it. And so it's really, really important to explain why this is not good. Or when they see a worm, young children often get spooked by its wriggling in the soil. And that is an opportunity for um, us as adults to say to them, well, you know, the worm does amazing work. It helps us grow all sorts of plants. And then you can tell the story of the worm once the children have encountered it. So it is really important from the very beginning to plant ideas of respect and helping to cho- helping children understand how to behave appropriately. So, for example, when I was... Um, Small, I was brought up in part of the Czech Republic, which is very woody, and we often went for walks in the woods 
And in the summer, the most important thing that my parents always said to me, you must be sure not to leave any bottles in the countryside because it could spark a fire. And that was so strongly planted in me from very, very young, together with things like making necklaces by threading wild strawberries on a blade of grass. So you get this wonderful, rich experiences, this careful guidance from the adult. So, But I think that it is important that we continued to educate uh, early years practitioners and teachers as well in the countryside code that we help them to understand some of the things they may have missed in their own early childhood experiences. Then Nicola, I'm sure you'd, you'd, you'd say that stories and, and fact books and things can help too turn little ones into conservationists. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. But can I, I just say something about, about North Norfolk before I say anything about that? I, I know that past the world quite well. I was brought up in Suffolk. I went to university in Cambridge and I've, I've ringed birds on Holm Beach in the middle of winter nights. And uh, it's, it's a fantastic, fantastic place. And I think people forget in the UK that, you know, I think people are so used to seeing wildlife programs about you know, the Serengeti and, and, you know, the Amazon rainforest. There are amazing extraordinary spectacles of wilderness right on their doorstep and actually Norfolk is a great place to find those and those swirling clouds of overwintering waders are you know there's some of the most beautiful things I've seen in my life um, and some of the happiest moments of my life have been spent in those environments but I think you know one of the one of the problems now with children's awareness of nature is that that awareness is is handed down from from your parents it's 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 domestically culturally transmitted through families if you have one generation that miss out on that then you've broken that chain and that's 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 difficult that's difficult to prepare which is why it's really important to include adults in the learning and the opportunities for thinking about stories and connection with wildlife that books offer. I did a book called um, The First Book of Nature. Um, it's called Outside, um, what is it called? Outside, Outside Your Window in the States, in America. Um, and when I was writing that, I was thinking very much of my first experiences of nature, which were with my grandpa and my dad in the garden. Um, and, but I was also thinking as I was writing it and as I was working with the illustrator that what I wanted was to remind adults, remind perhaps grandparents of their experiences uh, and to encourage them to seek out these experiences with their children. Um, one of the things that, that is really wonderful about being an author for very small children is that actually you're talking to the grown-ups too um, and you are encouraging grown-ups to go on a journey of learning and connection with their children uh, and you know that's kind of what I'm always thinking about when I'm writing for the youngest the littlest ones. 
I know that Barbara's experienced this in the last several years. Very lucky to have two gorgeous granddaughters to uh, open their so eyes jealous. to the wonders of the world. So, um, Jonathan, what what sorts of broader human activity are the biggest threats to the conservation areas that you manage? Um, is it overdevelopment like housing and commercial sites and transport or more pervasive kinds of things like pollution or poor land management, climate change? <clears throat> well, that's, a, that's a big question, and, and I think it's a, a big answer as well. And it, it, it's a bit of everything, uh, sadly. You know, we, we, we try not to be too pessimistic, but it's, it's hard sometimes to, to, to sort of um, not, not think about, you know, the, the sort of multi-things multi that are the threats. Um, I think that the biggest threat really is, is climate change. Um, and, you know, I, I think most people now accept that that is a, is a real thing. But, but even if, if, if we don't accept it is a, a real thing, a precautionary approach is probably better than, than just carrying on regardless. Um, and as I said, we were talking about the Brex earlier and I was talking about the, the environment there, the, the, the sort of climate. It used to be a very continental climate. So, you know, cold cold, dry winters, um, warm, dry summers. And that's changed a lot. It's sort of homogenized into this sort of, you know, um, sort of wet, wet winters, warmer winters, um, wetter summers. And, and, and that really has a, a knock-on effect to, to a lot of the, the species I was talking about, the, these sort of in, endemics, you know, the, the sort of more vigorous grasses grow a lot better when it's, it's like that sort of warm, wet weather. And out out compete the, the stuff we, we're trying to preserve. So, um, and then <clears throat> Norfolk, of course, very flat county, um, sort of bordered by the sea on on a couple of sides. Um, so, sea level rises. You know, you know that that's it's happening at an alarming rate. I think um, you know we we have to think beyond the immediate generation and, and perhaps the, the the one after that. But certainly within a few generations, a lot of the the land that we've got will be lost, you know, to, to the sea. And, and, you know, that sort of squeezes people then into to smaller and smaller areas and squeezes wildlife into smaller areas as well. We, we do a lot of work with the Environment Agency um, to, to mitigate that. So so we've got a project down in the Fens, um, which is um, where they've accepted they've, they're going to lose habitat on the Norfolk coast, um, you know, to, to sort of sea level rises, sort of, planting new habitat on on sites down there and they, they've invested a lot of money sort of you know several million pounds in these projects to create habitat for things like bittern and marsh harriers to, two birds that are real iconic species of of reed beds and, and norfolk to to colonize into and it's working you know these habitats have been been there for 10 years now and and funnily enough i was there there this morning at this site and, and saw marsh harriers sort of wheeling sort of doing sort of early courtship displays um we, we had bitten breeding on site last year so yeah i think climate change really it, it's a sort of everything else is sort of secondary to that you know we, we talk about people letting the dogs off the lead or having fires on the site and things like that but you know it's it, the, the big issue i think is is climate change Yeah, it's amazing that you can actually see on the ground because you know the environment so well. You can see in a way that most people can't the actual effects happening right now as a result mm. of climate change. I think most people 
dismiss it and say, oh, it's, you know, all hypothetical, you know, polar bears have always been on icebergs or whatever. But I mean, they don't, they don't have the knowledge and the, and the um, direct experience in order to appreciate how much effect it really is having right now. Do you meet many school groups or families who are visiting your conservation sites and do you've noticed what effect it has on them? I mean, do you, do you have direct uh, interaction with um, groups of groups which include young children? Yeah, um, not not me personally. Now, I used to work a lot in environmental education um, in one of my first jobs. Sort of the the summer term from Easter to to the summer holidays, we'd we'd be out sort of four or five days a week with with groups um, doing activities like pond dipping and and in mini beast hunts and things like that um it's it's quite hard to maintain the enthusiasm um sort of that when you're on to day day five to to go and pond dip and and find you know a water beetle or a frog but of course to the children that's the first time they've seen it and and you know the 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 sort of their enthusiasm would would sort of rub off on you and you'd go well actually yeah what what we're doing here is is really important um i think it goes back to what what barbara was saying about that you know getting them to focus on on what's around them from from an early age you know and, and pond dipping is a, is a really good example of that you know even the sort of smallest garden pond can have life that you know people just have never seen before um so so yeah i've done a lot of environmental ed- education in the past um in norfolk we we have a, a education team so we have um people who are employed and then we have sort of seasonal people who start sort of you know, in the spring and, and go through through the summer, and that they lead all sorts of activities from sort of, you know, sort of rock pool activities on the coast down to um, art art workshops, um, all sorts of things to to sort of engage with children of all ages, you know, and, and adult groups as well. But um, yeah, I think there's some in, very inspiring to work with young younger children, you know, and and as as, as young as you can, can really to to get those sort of values in, in, instilled in them and I think that's that's really nice and Nicola what have you noticed about the benefits for children when you when you take them to natural areas how, yeah. how do they respond I mean it's it, so many on so many levels in so many different ways and in so many different contexts I've seen it um I I think it's absolutely essential for children's mental health and development um and it, it 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 helps them to see where they fit in the world in the grand scheme of things so it's it's emotionally spiritually intellectually important but also now um making encouraging children to make that connection with the natural world and to notice it um, and to understand their place in it is a, is a survival skill because we are in the pickle that we're in because we have seen ourselves as separate from nature. Do families and children get involved? Are they joining the local groups? Some of the events sort of families and children will come to, but um, I, I I did a, a recent talk to one of the AGMs at one of the groups, and I, I have to say, it was quite a an older demographic of, of people who were there. And I think that's one of the, the the threats, if you like, to nature conservation is that 
you know, it's traditionally supported by older older people. You know, our, our, our membership demographic is, is probably sort of retired or semi-retired, you know, as a majority. So, so trying to engage with that younger generation, I think what Nicola was saying about that missing a generation is is absolutely true. You know that that keeping that link going and passing on that respect and understanding. And I, I think we've we've probably got at the moment that we, we are in that stage of of missing a generation, the, the sort of generation of I suppose it's like the tech generation. You know, the the, the sort of people who spend more time in front of a computer or in front of a you know playstation rather than being out in in the countryside or, or you know in, in their local environment um so yeah it's it's it, it does feel like there's a gap um that needs to be plugged yeah which is really a shame given how important it is to get their involvement um in you know changing public policy and raising awareness of the danger, the imminent dangers of climate change. Jonathan, can you talk about how you got involved in the conservation business? It sounds, um, you know, sounds like something you might have been inclined to from very young. Yeah, I mean, I I grew up in in Worcestershire, um, and in in the sort of shadow of of a national trust property, the, the Clent Hills, and um, I wasn't really interested in football, um, so so sort of going out into the countryside was was my sort of um pastime i i sort of you, you sort of suddenly realize how old you are when you start to say things like back in my day but uh you know the the sort of typical sort of idea of sort of going out into the, the woods and fields and you know obviously no mobile phones back then um so i I just disappear off by myself or with friends for for the whole day and and nobody would really know where i was but they'd know I was I was probably going to be okay and would come back when when I was hungry um and and that's that's how it sort of developed really um my my mom tells this story of when I was a baby I used to pick wood lice up off the, the patio and and actually sort of set them up and race get them to race each other along, along the patio so so obviously there's something more from a very early age um and I I, I really fell in luckily with with sort of some really good teachers at school um it was a, a sort of conventional school but but some really good teachers and also sort of rangers and, and wardens who who ran sort of sort of school group kids kids clubs if you like on, on the on the clent hills um and you know I, I still know some of those people now um and you know they they were really my mentors in in nature conservation um at at primary school, I remember a teacher. You know, she she'd sort of we we had a sort of nature area at school. It was sort of, I suppose almost before sort of the the idea of forest schools, but sort of nature area, and I was fairly involved with that. Um, and we we go on school trips to to local local sort of countryside areas. Um, and and then at secondary school as well, I you know I think the teachers realised that I wasn't particularly academic. Um, you know, I I got by, but I wasn't you know ever going to be a professor um but realized that i had got this sort of particular interest in nature conservation and i i thinking about coming today i was recalled in my mind a, a time where i got an offer to go with some some friends um up to the isle of Arran for a week and somehow managed to persuade my mom to phone my head of year on a sunday afternoon um at home 
and ask if it was okay if I took the week off school. And he said, yeah, he'll learn far more there than he, he will sort of at school. And so, you know, and I think that's true, you, you know, that sort of um, informal education and, and sort of relaxed um, way of going about things certainly set me off in the right direction to, to where I am now. I think it's a real testament to your uh, school experience and your teachers that they could recognize this strength in you and cultivate it. Um, I hope teachers are still doing that. But um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, it must have given you a kind of philosophical view of conservation, you know, after all these years, decades of experience in different sites. Um, and the whole idea of conservation and landscape management and really any kind of public sector intervention on behalf of wildlife and nature sort of begs a question in my mind. So what is the right relationship between humanity and nature? Are, are we curators of the natural world, the way the National Trust curates kind of historic country houses? Or are people instinctively wicked exploiters of nature and we need to restrain ourselves? Or what's the best way to think about the relationship between people and nature? I think, as I said earlier on, you know, nature needs us, you know, and that, that's my, my job. You know, I, I like to think nature need, needs me and, and people like the, the National Trust or the Wildlife Trust or, or the RSPB or, or, or individuals working on a, you know, on a, a sort of local level, you know. Um, but when you think about it, it's sad that we've got to that situation, that we, we've ended up where, where nature is reliant on us to, to survive you know we've created these these nature reserves and, and they're, they're fantastic places but they're fragments of what what was there and you know i think without getting too too deep into to the the the, the 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 subject but you know we are a species in the world you know we, we are one of, of of many many species but we've we've assumed i think this this superiority over every other species to, to the detriment of of the world and, and ultimately to ourselves you know and I think you know that point about we need nature more than nature needs us you know if we weren't here as a species then nature would be a lot better off you know but uh, it's it's yeah that's a big big subject really um so yeah that's um where 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 we're at but I, I you know my, my 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 view is that you know we we do our our bit you know and I I I sort of I say from a, from an early age I've been doing it and and enjoy what I'm doing and believe in what I'm doing you know I don't I don't do it you know it, it's a vocation it's a way of life you know when I'm not at work I'm I, I it looks like I'm at work you know I'm sort of out and about doing doing things so you know you don't do the sort of job I do for the pay packet or the the sort of you know pat on the back it's it's because you believe in what you do. Yeah. So, and um, Nicola, what's your view? Would the would the world be better off without us? If, I think if you'd asked me when I was 20, I would have said yes. Um, but I like humans now. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> like them very much when I was young. Uh, and I think that's a lot to do with being a mum, actually. Um, but objectively, of course, you know, nature would be absolutely fine without us. So actually our relationship 
with the natural world, uh, we need to acquire a great deal of humility. Uh, and we need to acquire the mindset of uh, indigenous peoples around the world who, who knew that over-exploitation of the natural resources around them would lead to their demise. Uh, and somehow uh, the modern culture has forgotten that and missed that out. Um, so I think it's about learning the lessons that many peoples around the world knew absolutely through and through and through and through. And they were tied to the natural world with a, with a rope of necessity that was extremely obvious to them. Um, and any disrespect of that dependent relationship was, was extremely detrimental, if not fatal. Um, and actually, we're in exactly the same position. But because that rope is rather longer, we don't see what's on the other end of it. We don't understand what's on the other end of it. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and that's what we need to change. Uh, uh, and that's why connecting people, connecting families, connecting children with the natural world so they can understand the, the incredibly complex weft of biodiversity that holds us up. Um, that's a very essential lesson to learn very quickly. Yeah, it's a lovely analogy. Um, I especially like the long rope because it's that rope is so long for so many people yeah. that they don't know there's anything at all at the other end of it. Yeah, so, absolutely. So, absolutely. absolutely. Barbara, how do Montessori practices uh, approach this issue of the relationship between people and nature? I think that it's really interesting to go back to Montessori's writing in her book to educate the human potential which she wrote after the Second World War. She already highlights some of these issues which we may encounter in the future. We are now facing them absolutely head on. And I think her answer was to educate children towards the understanding of being part of the whole cosmos, that whole idea of the pedagogical framework of cosmic education, having under children understanding the enormous work of nature which has taken place in evolution of species for us to be here in this very little speck of time. She also highlighted our capacity to destroy things, uh, you know, the potential that we have to create, but also to destroy. So, uh, and this is where she has advocated for change in education so that we create more harmonious, cooperative, collaborative um, world. Um, she often gives examples of um, indigenous communities and how they have tackled situations. Um, and I think uh, for particularly people in uh, the Western world where we benefit the most um, of the technological progress and exploit the earth the most, it is really, really important for young children to be aware of the power of changing or the potential they have in their hands to change. 
it is not too late, but it is almost too late. The task is really enormous in front of all educators and, in fact, in, in front of all adults and all parents. If we really value the earth that we have come to know, and uh, when I have worked with students and I have asked them about the early sensory experiences of the world, because that's what underpins Montessori education, most of them would talk about the smell of rain on a summer's day or uh, the feel of of sand on your toes um, when you are on the beach. So we are intrinsically connected to nature because we are one of the species living on Earth. We just have this extra element of cognition which has removed us from the natural and set us apart, and we somehow need to find more connection. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. There, there is now this growing scientific and maybe political consensus on how people in nature can be more sustainably coexisting. But then there's all those people who are saying, oh, this isn't free. Um, you know, there's, there's priorities. You know, should wildlife conservation from the need for social housing or industrial jobs or farmland for food security? So it's, you know, it's a, there's a constant debate about it, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a specious dichotomy. You know, it really is. And it's always made by people who wish to exploit the natural world to say, oh, well, you know, do we want animals or do we want to give people housing? It's nonsense. It's just an excuse. And it's lazy thinking. It's really lazy thinking. Do you Sorry. agree, Jonathan? Is that, that makes a. It's really cross. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> I, I Jonathan, is that agree. is that your view as well? I mean, do you have to encounter the issues at that level? Um, not not day to day, but you know, policies filter down. Um, like I think it, Nicola's absolutely right. You know, we, we we need to to learn to to live better together, better on the land. Um, and I think I think I was listening to to you talking about Radio Four and. The, there's a, you know, we 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 know we need to plant more trees from climate change point of view and, and sort of mental health and, and timber production etc. And we're, we're looking at sort of three hundred thousand acres or hectares um, over the next sort of twenty years in the UK. And people are up in arms about this. You know, well, what where are we going to where are we going to have food production? Where are we going to have housing? Where are we going to do this? But actually, there's nine million hectares of land that's farmed in the UK. So, so it's quite a small percentage of land that we're talking about. And the land we, that we'd use for this sort of tree planting and, and wilding is the marginal land that produces a very small percentage of our, our food. Clearly, we need to have food security in the UK, but we also need nature and we need a healthy environment and a healthy climate. For, and, and the two are, are absolutely linked. I mean, everyone who's involved in agriculture knows how important Norfolk and Suffolk are to the whole country's agricultural output. 
I think it's, I read it was a fifth of the country's poultry and a fifth of its vegetables, a quarter of its pork production, half of the UK's sugar beet crop all, you know, come from that part of the country. Um, so what's the relationship between all that farming um, and the tr- the work of the Wildlife Trust? Is it a, is it a good collaborative relationship? Maybe it's evolving. Yeah, I, it, it's certainly evolving. I think it, it's a, it's a very stark juxtaposition. You know, so we, we were talking earlier about the Brex, and and you've got these these nature reserves with with endemic species on. You know, fragments of what used to be there, right next to some of our most intensive agriculture in the UK. You know, sort of outdoor factory farming, if you like. You know, you know sort of in, intensive outdoor pigs, intensive potato growing, onion growing, etc. And the two things are, are are not compatible. You know, there is there is very little you can say that, that the two things can work together. But as a movement, the Wildlife Trusts, you know, you know, other organisations, we realise that we can't do all this by ourselves. You know, the 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 amount of land that is in managed purely for nature conservation is is tiny. You know, it's a, a tiny percentage. So we need to engage much more with farmers. It's it's really easy to to sort of bash bash the farmers but they're, they're doing their jobs they're, they're feeding us and they're you know doing what what they need to do so so we need to find a way of working better with them and what we have um, in the wildlife trust is a concept called living landscapes and it is literally trying to connect up um these habitats so, so if you've got a really good nature reserve in one part of the the county um thinking how wildlife can move between that nature reserve and another one so so better use of hedge rows and and sort of strips in arable fields that aren't cultivated um and that that has to come from from sort of the, the top down you know we, we've come out of europe now for better for worse and we, we need to sort of rebuild our agri-environment schemes which which is is happening and the, the early signs are good i think you know if if what is talked about is delivered then things could look pretty good in the next 10 years but that's a big if isn't it and you know we 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 need as a organization and as a a movement we need to keep pressure on the government and and policymakers to ensure that nature is considered in that you know the food production and and sustainable development and and energy production and and climate change it, it needs to be at the heart of, of what's happening. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, again, it's a, a complete interdependence, really. You can't have one successful without the other. Um, Nicola, how do you address the balance between farming and nature in your, in your writing? <laughs> well, I'm probably... <laughs> uh, okay. Um, the problem with a lot of modern farming is that it's not actually about producing food. It's about producing profit. Um, uh, they take the example of sugar beet. Okay, sugar beet is largely used for sugar production. Sugar is one of the most insidious, addictive poisons, uh, which we shouldn't be eating, which we don't need. Um, so we really need to radically rethink what farming is doing and how it's doing it, um, and who's it doing it for. Um, there's also a lot of kind of 
in terms of habitat restoration and um, uh, and climate change mitigation, there's quite a lot of low-hanging fruit in agriculture. For instance, around here, in the fields around here, you know, I'm living on the factory floor of industrial farming here, uh, mostly arable. Um, and the hedgerows have gone. Now, the hedgerows haven't gone for any really good reason. It's not interfering with... Um, with um, agricultural machinery. It's gone because farmers have got into the habit of tidying things up. It's really, really, really that simple. Um, and and the, the corollary of that is that we, there's significant erosion, particularly in Norfolk because of loss of, loss of Norfolk and Suffolk because of loss of hedgerows. But also so, hedgerows um, are an important um place for wildlife aren't they They're incredibly important for wildlife and as far as the tree planting is concerned that's another low-hanging fruit you know um so there are there are relatively simple things that we can do right now to improve the situation but we also need a radical rethink of agriculture because agriculture as i'm sure you know is about the biggest contributor to uh to co2 emissions because of the things it does to soils. And now we've heard a lot in the news recently about the things that agricultural runoff is doing to our rivers. So we need a big, big, big rethink. And I know that for farmers, that's incredibly, incredibly difficult because for years and years, they've been dictated to by the big supermarkets and their margins have been cut and cut and cut and cut and cut. So we need to rethink and we need to support farmers to make the changes that as a whole culture we need to give us the ecosystem services of clean air, clean water, and food that is healthy for everybody to eat. Yeah. Great. Well summarized. It's, it's really good. So, um, Jonathan, I know one of your interests is, is partnerships between the Wildlife Trust and other responsible bodies. Um, how are those best managed? For example, do you have partnerships with schools and universities as part of the Trust's work? Uh, yeah, I mean, what, one of the, the big ones we have um, is with um, University of East Anglia. And we, we sort of have, at the moment, for example, um, on the, the back of the, the sort of um, pandemic, the, the government had a green recovery fund, which was designed to, to bring people into employment, sort of young, young people into employment uh, in the, the sort of conservation and, and wildlife sector. So we, we have a relationship with um, UEA to to have interns. So, so at the moment we've got um, three interns working in the trust. Uh, one of one of those is sort of a very practical role out doing sort of habitat conservation at the, the coalface. One is um, a mixture of sort of survey work and and habitat work, and one is a very much a desk based role, sort of doing sort of um, GIS work and. Um, designing map, maps for us and, and doing sort of decrunching data that we've got. We've had, had this data sat there for, for years, so, so we've got, got somebody working on that, which is which is great. Um, so so that's, a, that's a partnership we have, have with them. Um, and, and we also sort of host, you know, master's students and, and undergraduates to, to do work out on our sites. And it, it's a really good opportunity for us, you know, to, to get some really good surveys done. So we, we have to put the time in to start with to to produce to to work out what we want because otherwise 
um, you know, people go off on sort of a tangent sometimes and, and do something that, that perhaps isn't that useful. Um, but no, par- partnerships are important. You know, we're talking about, part, you know, working with farmers and landowners. Um, you know, it, it's something we, we have to do. But we also work with other sort of agencies, like one of the ones that we've got down in, in the Brex is um, the Brex Heath Partnership. So that's between the Wildlife Trust, Natural England, who are the, the government sort of nature conservation agency, and Forestry England, obviously the, the forestry agency. Um, and that is to to recreate heathlands because a lot of the Brex that was planted um, after the First World War, it sort of Thetford Forest is the, the largest lowland forest in the UK, eight, 18,000 hectares. It was really easy to plant trees on. We, we needed trees after, after the war, you know, to, to, to sort of re, rebuild. And Thetford was a perfect area because it's light sandy soils, no sort of productivity of agriculture. So huge areas were taken out of heathlands into uh, for, uh, commercial forests. Which had a real effect on on the, the species like night jars and woodlarks and stone curly and things that, that require those open habitats. So we work with with Forestry England to recreate some of those. And so far, we've done three hundred hectares of new or, or recreation of habitat, and you, you know that's a, made a big difference to to those species. Yeah, and like like you say, it's really all of us pulling together in the same direction. I mean, Barbara, from that point of view, does the Montessori movement or early educators generally reach out to nature-based organizations like the Wildlife Trust and do they need to do more of that? Certainly, um, nurseries, Montessori and mainstream nurseries would take advantage of uh, facilities made available by the Earth Trust, by the Wildlife Trust, uh, when we run um, our conference on nature in education, uh, we invited um, the National Trust to talk about their initiatives of making their parks and woods more available to school and children for various uh, projects and opportunities. We also um, worked with, I think, the RHS. Um, on uh, planting and teaching children how to plant various things and how to look after their gardens. So, yes, um, whilst there's not one overarching national initiative, there are lots of little initiatives. For example, at the moment, we are working on a sustainable citizenship award uh, through the OMEP organization. And... um, we are making sure that the children who are participating in the Sustainable Citizenship Awards get deeper access or better access to the Earth Trust, to various natural resources for them to come closer to it and also to make it more accessible to children and their families. Um, so, yes, people are definitely aware of the need to make more connections. Um, and also, I think the most important thing from the educational perspective is to help children understand their environment a little bit more and also enable them to believe that it is within their power to make changes. 
So to give children the agency to actually believe that if I believe in something passionately, I have got the power to make the change. So starting initiatives from bottom up rather than waiting to see what will come from top down because most change in history has been affected from bottom up, not from top down. So that's what I think needs to be shared. Okay, great. Let's stop there for now. Thanks again to Barbara and David and to our guests, Nicola and Jonathan. Uh, we'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>